You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful, cool, rainy day. I thank you that it's the weather that needs to drive people into seminars. And I thank you that we're in this class today studying these important themes from your word. Please, Lord, open our understanding as only you can through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us with Bible in hand to see truth plainly and to see how it's connected a whole system of truth that we don't just have arbitrary belief disconnected from other belief, but there is one common thread from Genesis to Revelation that reveals the heart of a God who is love. Please, Lord, help us to know God through his word today and be ready as the opportunity becomes available to share our faith effectively. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first of all, we're just going to go, and remembering that we have two breaks, and we have, so we have three different sections of, uh, of class time, and we have three different sections. We're going to try to evenly distribute those, though I would probably say we're going to do this one a little shorter, the middle one a little longer, and the second one a little shorter. That's my guess, but we'll see how it goes. Can you be a helper with this? Here, maybe we'll do one side and one side another. I think that's very unbalanced, what I just did there. Thank you. <laughs> All right. But we're going to start talking about what the Bible says about death. And the question everybody has is, what happens when I die? Okay? And it's a natural question. Of course, uh, we were not built. I do not believe. And So, for instance, I was born on August 15, 1977. Okay? I was alive one day with Elvis Presley. <laughs> that was my claim to fame there. Um, and so I don't, and honestly, I don't really, I, I could say, I don't remember anything before August 15, 1970, but I don't remember August 15, 1977. I don't remember August 16 either. <laughs> I don't know exactly when memory started to form, but let's just for the sake of argument say it was August 15, 1977 is when my memory began, okay? I don't know what happened before then because I wasn't there for it. Now, I've heard other people who were alive before August 15, 1977, tell me things about, you know, gas shortages or the Vietnam War or before that, whatever was going on, you know, in society. But I wasn't there for it. I don't know. I also don't mourn that fact. I'm not lamenting it. I don't feel jaded. I just, that's my starting point, okay? I have no problem grasping the concept that I have a starting point, now, why am I talking about what's such an odd thing? Because oftentimes when we talk about what happens when I die or what is death, we all jump to start interpreting what death is and start to uh, conjecture or propose these ideas of what happens when I die. And one thing we never seem to talk about is what it means to be alive in the first place. We jump to what happens at the end of life without even discussing the nature of life itself. And we're going to discover that the answer to help you know, resolve the mystery of death is the proper understanding of life. 
Does that make sense? Well, it may not make sense yet, but you'll see it in a minute, all right? But death only makes sense when you first understand life, okay? And everybody jumps to what happens when I die before we even talk about what does it mean to be alive in the first place? So let's talk about what it means to be alive and back to August 15, 1977. For me, that's when life started. Now, I'm not getting into the debate about prenatal, all that. I'm saying I came out into this world, ha, breathing on my own, here I am on that date. Now, Ever since that time, I have had a day that runs into the next day, which runs into the next day, which runs into the next day. I have every expectation that this today will lead to a tomorrow that then will be my today. Right? And I'm going to have another one after that, and another one after that, and to me that makes total sense. That is my natural expectation that day will lead to day, and I'll just keep having them going forward. So in my mind, it makes sense that I had a starting point, and then I just keep going. What makes me uneasy is the idea of having an ending point. For some reason, I have no problem with a starting point. In fact, I'm guessing none of us have even considered not having a starting point. It would blow my mind to try to not have a... I, I couldn't even wrap my mind around what it would be like to not have a starting point. Everybody's got a starting point. It's the ending point that's weird and unnatural and eerie and, and mysterious. It's almost like we were designed to have a beginning, <laughs> but not to expect to come to an end. Okay? Now, let's go to the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. I believe that every good study on death should start with a study on life. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Now, I like this one in all the versions. It's especially clear in the King James Version, or at least it speaks to the common misunderstandings when you go to the King James Version. Is there anyone in the room who has the King James Version, would like to read Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, in your loud, preachery voice. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Okay. This is a well-known passage from many Seventh-day Adventists that this is the formula for life right there at the beginning of our existence as a, as a race of people, as, a, as, a, as an existing species at all, right? That God... And we're not even going to get to the pieces and parts yet, but I want you to think about the elementary thing we just said. God formed man from the dust of the ground. So that means that before man was formed, what was he? Okay. So the dust was a man, and the dust was thinking and feeling and breathing. No. So where was the man before God formed him? Somebody said it. He did not, it didn't exist. He wasn't. There was a time when humanity was not. And then God did something to make it so, right? And according to scripture, he took the dust of the ground and the breath of life and animated, brought to existence this dust of the ground, right? And it says, according to scripture, and man became a living what? Soul. So we understand that God's formula for life, what made us happen, 
was God's creative power of forming a body for man and breathing into it his breath of life, animating with his own life that he has in himself. And from that process of dust combining with his breath, brought into existence something that had not been in existence until that moment. Namely, according to scripture, a living, what was the word? Soul. Please notice that it does not say that God formed a body and put into it a living soul. Because according to scripture, you do not have a soul. According to scripture, you are a soul. The soul is simply the combination of the material God used to form the physical body, right? The dust of the ground, dirt, and his animating life that he can give as a gift. And that's a deep theological term. And man became where before he was not. Very simple. It's very simple. And thus we have the biblically correct concept that you do not have a soul, you are a soul. Because when most people ask the question about death, they're saying, I know that my body might die, but what happens to my See? There's the misunderstanding about the nature of life that leads to the confusion about death. Most people have this picture that we are a physical being just kind of a host body for this other thing, a separate, some would say immortal, mystical, spiritual thing. That if this body is degraded with age or injured in a car, whatever the thing is, that that other thing is impervious to the slings and arrows of this life, and it has a life of its own. That it is itself immortal. And that God, when making man, just made a body and put an immortal soul inside of it. But scripture does not teach that. It says there was a time and man wasn't. And then he was. And man became a living soul. So with that concept, now we'll look at how the Bible talks about death. And once you have that one correct picture of what life is, death is so much less mysterious. Because death is simply the undoing of that life that God brought into existence. Okay? Let's look at several passages, okay? Still in Genesis chapter 2, I mean Genesis chapter 3, you know, if, if all we had when the Bible with the first two chapters, that would be great. Because nothing was ever wrong, no one ever sinned, it was the Garden of Eden, everybody was happy, they could eat whatever they, was, was given to them, and they were fruitful and multiply. But Genesis 3 came along, and we know what happened. Sin entered, and according to the Bible, death through sin. And notice in Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord is speaking to Adam, that same one where he formed from the ground and breathed through his nostrils the breath of life, he has to make this statement in Genesis 3.19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return, what? To the ground. Notice here the Lord himself, because we know that the wages of sin is what? 
death. So he is explaining to us the consequence of that rebellious choice to sin. What that's going to mean. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So notice that when God speaks about death, and explains it for the very first time, it's simply an undoing of the dust of the ground that he formed man in. Now you're going to go back to the ground. So in God's reckoning here in Genesis chapter 2, we have life, and in Genesis 3, we have death. And it both has that, I brought you into this through this process, and then the undoing of that process is death. Very simple. It's a separating of that breath of life that God gave with the dust of the ground material, that will go back to that when you're done. Okay? Let's go. I want to, I want to show several passages, but go ahead. You had a question, ma'am. Yes. Uh, the Bible tells me that God. Make you from dust. Right. He made Adam from dust, and then he said, Now I want you. See, what God did was create. What he gives us the power to do in his mercy is procreate. So we get to continue on that life bearing process that he instituted. So he doesn't, he doesn't make everyone from the dust of the ground. Like, that's not where we get babies. And praise the Lord, this is not the lecture on how to make babies. I'm <laughs> but what you're saying there is that he gave the command to Adam and his wife Eve, said, now be fruitful and multiply. You've, I've started this thing in the process and you continue it on through your continued parenting and whatnot. So yes, we are still derivative from that original creation but he gives us the power to procreate and continue that on, if that's clarifying at all. Yes. Yes, yeah, exactly. So the, those things, I mean, if I chopped off my, which I'm not going to do this for an illustration, but if I were to chop off my finger, right, and detach a chunk of my body, and this, is, this is a really gross illustration, but let's just go with it. <laughs> if I were to leave that here, you, have you ever seen those things where they try to take a, a, a cheeseburger from McDonald's or something and, and like age it and, and notice that it doesn't ever age? Like the, somehow the fries never get moldy? Your food is supposed to get moldy, right? Anything that can last 20 years on the shelf is probably not good for your insides, okay? But in our natural, unpreserved state, you know, the skin and the tissue and stuff, it will go back to the base elements that constitute the rest of the dirt. Yeah, yeah there's, there's no animating force. It's detached from the breath of life. And it, in fact, that very thing, thank you, that will launch us into our next text. For example, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm going to look at a handful, just very quickly, of passages that from the Bible itself explains how death is the undoing of God's creation. Okay? And watch the consistency with which Old and New Testament this is spoken of. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Um, let me make sure I've got this one here. This one in verse 6 is written as a cautionary tale from the wisest man who ever lived, looking back on his life, saying, man, if I had it to do over again, I would recommend this. This is... Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 6 says, Remember your Creator before the silver, and it's very poetic, before the silver cord is loosed. 
Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 6 says, Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the wheel. Uh, well, what are all of these uh, poetic analogies talking about? Things broken. You're undoing of them, right? <laughs> Your pitcher is broken, the thread is loosed, you know, this kind of thing. And those are references to death. He's writing poetically about dying. Okay? And he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before we meet our end. Okay? And then he explains what happens at the end. Then the dust will do what? Return to the earth as it was. And the Spirit will what? Return to God who did what? Who gave it. And people say, aha, see there, your soul is going to go. No, 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 no. But go back to creation. It did not say that he formed a body and then took Adam, this living thing, and placed it inside of that body because Adam didn't exist before God made him. So there was a time when he wasn't then God made him, and then he was. And at the end of life, it's just simply the undoing of that. The body goes back, dissolves into those base elements, and the spirit, the animating life, that was God's. So the question is, where is Adam? Uh, that's a very popular answer. He's sleeping. I'm going to tell you something. I'm a little uncomfortable with that answer. He doesn't Thank you. He isn't. That's why we started over here. What was it? We have no problem saying before he was formed, where is he? Well, he just wasn't. Well, after he dies, where is he? Well, now we have to put him to bed. <laughs> or we had to put him in heaven. We had to, we had to do something with him because he still he's just doesn't exist. Do you see what I'm saying? I know. Let me, no, 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 no. I hear you. I had an experience just this last week. A family member of mine just died. I was going to use this illustration a little bit later on. But I'm telling you, the truth from the Word of God about life and death and knowing that our life is not just in our body, it's in the hands of our Creator. That our life is secure because we have a living, breathing, everlasting Savior who can command life again. That's the beauty. That our life is hidden in God. And that the same voice that commanded Adam and gave him breath of life is sitting on the throne now and is soon to return, is going to do it again at the last trump, when the voice of the archangel calls the graves open? What does it mean, for instance, the next thing people say, the Bible uses the illustration of sleep. And so I don't want to say it's a wrong answer, bad answer, but it gives the impression that something is, they're just on a pause, which obviously is a very intense pause, but when he says our friend Lazarus sleeps in John chapter 11, what was their initial response? Oh, good, let's go and wake him up. Because they're, oh, he's, and he, Jesus had to say, what I mean by that is, 
Lazarus is dead. So he had to clarify even for them that they had come to the idea, oh, it's just a, a less than conscious state, but not really go. And he's like, no, what I mean is, Lazarus is dead. But I go. You know, he explained, I can wake him up. It's a sleep only in the sense that it can be woken up from. And the key to life is in Jesus Christ himself. In that sense, it is sleep. And we can't get off the rails and get every comment. I know we got a lot to cover. But I want to lay the biblical foundation because I want to show you text after text. Let me give you this. For example, go to Psalm 104. Because we're looking at the same process. Because we started in Genesis chapter 2 when God brought life into existence by taking the dust of the ground and breathing in his life, activating force, and brings man into being. And then we're going to notice that from Genesis chapter 3 and onward, every time we talk about death, there's that same formula. It's just the separating of those two things. Okay? So, for example, we just saw Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Let's go to Psalm 104, verse 29. Here it's talking about the wicked and how God is going to destroy them, but it talks about how that process of death works. It says, you hide your face, they are troubled. Notice this, you take away their breath. So the same breath that God gave, he now removes. They die, and what happens? Return to their dust. There's that same formula again. You have the dust and the breath, when combined, makes a living being. When separated, you have death. So when brought together, life. When separated, death. And the only one who can make life or remake life is Jesus Christ. So our hope of eternal life is not in an internal soul that I have to protect. It's in the one who alone is immortal and can give immortality as a gift. Notice what James says in the book of James when he talked about how closely related faith and works are. James chapter 2. He says this in verse 26. And again, we usually talk about how we don't want to just say we have faith. We have to show it with our works, and that's so true. But he uses an analogy of life and death that at that point everyone was very familiar with. James chapter 2, verse 26. He says, For as the body without the spirit is what? Dead. Dead. The separated body, apart from the spirit, that remainder is death. Right? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so, in like manner, faith without works is also what? Dead. So he's like, James is apparently writing to people who are like, yeah, I've, I've got faith, 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 but they're not actually living according to that. And he's saying that's just as dead as a body apart from the animating spirit of God is dead. So, death once we've established what life is to begin with, death is simply the undoing of that life. The body returns to the dust, and the breath is God's, and he simply takes it back. Now, the question was brought up, death is like a sleep. Let's walk through that and understand what the Bible teaches. Go to John chapter 11. We've already referred to it here. John chapter 11, we'll start with verse 11. 
This is the passage under discussion a minute ago. Jesus is there with his disciples and he receives news that his friend is very sick, but he chooses to stay away because he needs to teach a lesson. Now, we'll take just an extended minute and look at John 11. I think it's a very interesting rewritten passage. For example, look at verse 3 of chapter 11. Therefore, his, uh, the sisters of Lazarus sent to him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is in what condition? Sick. He's not dead. He's sick, right? When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He said, it's not gonna, the end of the story is not going to be death. But it will go through the avenue of death to get there. Well, he'll explain that shortly. Okay? Now, what's bizarre about this is verse 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What's the first word of verse 6? So, or now. Whatever we're about to read in the rest of verse 6 is based on his love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, right? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Isn't that odd? Why did Jesus stay where he was, according to the Bible? Because he loved them. It's odd. They're going to take issue with that in a few minutes. Martha has some choice words for Jesus, as does Mary. In fact, they're identical words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he's like, I know. That's why I stayed away. I know it seems odd, but Jesus is like, this is an opportunity to teach people something they do not yet understand. It's an object lesson. Keeps going. Well, anyway, we'll skip past the part, the debating about when to go and whatnot. But let's skip down to verse, uh, verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps. Now, this is present tense sleeps. Okay? But I go that I may wake him up. Now, they're like, oh, good. If you hear that someone is sick, but they're getting good sleep, you're like, oh, good, they're resting, they're going to get better. Right? That's the understanding. That's exactly what the disciples said. Verse 12, then, he, then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will what? Get well. Did they understand he was dead? No. no. Jesus is using a nice poetic analogy to explain the experience of death, but the reality of the situation was that Lazarus was actually dead. Okay? And he goes on to say it. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was taking, talk, uh, speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them, how? Plainly. So the, clearly the, the death thing is a metaphor, but it's not conveying the reality. Does that make sense? It's talking about the experience of death, what it's like from their perspective, but the reality is he was no longer conscious, he was no longer breathing, his life was over. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Oh, and look at verse 15. Even weirder. And I am glad. But why was he glad? For Lazarus' sake? 
No, he, he didn't want Lazarus to suffer. He didn't want him to be sick, much less be dead. But he said, this is an opportunity. I need to teach a lesson here. For I am glad, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Because what would have happened, friends, if Jesus had been there? <laughs> yeah. Mary and Martha, by the way, were right. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have what? Died. But she's like, I need this opportunity to teach you something that you don't quite get. By the way, I, we, I don't have time to go through this whole thing, but it's fascinating. Even his own disciples, his close friends, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, they all believed in Jesus, that he could do things. They, they believed he could heal sick people, he could turn water into wine, he could walk on water, calm the storms. So he could do miracles. But in their mind, there was one thing that even Jesus couldn't do. And what's that? Raise the dead. They did not understand who and what Jesus really was. And he's like, I have to teach you this lesson. So this is an opportunity. Said, I am glad I was not there for your sakes that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And Thomas, always being a joy to have around, <laughs> Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, <laughs> anyway. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Skip down to verse 20. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I think that's a fascinating little interaction there. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died, but now we're going to have to call on God. He's like, well, who do you... Do you see the misunderstanding? They think of Jesus as the, obviously, the Son of God, and that, in their mind, that means like a semi-God, or a kind of God, or a sort of God, or a God-ish thing. But not like the giving life to... The, that we're going to need to call on, you know, God, God. Jesus is like, who do you think you're... Well, in fact, I won't have to paraphrase. Look what he said. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Notice he's not like using coded language or a metaphor. He's like, no, he's about to wake up. He's going to rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Okay. But Jesus is thinking, who do you think is going to be doing the resurrecting on that day? <laughs> Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. You know, we, we put these little quotes like on, you know, pillow shams or something. Like, I think Jesus was genuinely trying, like, I don't know how to make language any clearer. I am the resurrection. <laughs> The life that he's going to have is in me. That's how he's going to live. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Which is good. Mary, of course, gives the same thing, and we just don't have time to go through it. But Jesus is trying to explain the experience of death from Lazarus' perspective is like going to sleep. I don't know how many of you sleep well at night. I am getting to the age that I love going, I like sleep. I like sleep. And a good sleep is a sleep that you don't even know it happened till you wake up. Sometimes I'll be so tired that I will find my position in bed, you know, and I'll go to sleep. And I will literally wake up and haven't moved. Haven't even rolled around. That's good sleep. My wife was frustrated when our kids were little that I could experience such good sleep. <laughs> they would come in and need to drink a water or bathroom break or something like this, and they'd go to mama. Why? Because daddy, there's no responding. <laughs> right? I, 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 I know not anything when I'm in that sleep, right? And this is the closest experiential relation we can have to the reality of death is the experience of sleep. That you're alive, walking around, then you lay down, you close your eyes, and boom. You know nothing until you wake up again, right? By the way, when they woke Lazarus up from the grave, notice he, didn't, he wasn't mad that he had come down. And notice it didn't say he called Lazarus down. Nor did it say Lazarus come up. And he was like, oh, thank goodness. No. He just said, come forth. He commanded life and he woke up. That's how it works. The same creative power that brought man into existence is the same voice of God, the voice of the archangel, that's going to command life to the dead. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And Lazarus, that teaching is what Jesus wanted to convey in that very thing. So the experience of death is akin to sleep. That's why the Bible refers to it as a sleep, the sleep of death, right? You see this over and over. I'm thinking of... I'll just rattle them off here very quickly, but Psalm 13, 3 says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Old and New Testament, the same analogy, the same simile is used. Death is like sleep. In Daniel chapter 12, talking about the resurrection in the last days, says, At that time Michael shall stand up, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And we'll talk about the differences between the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked as we go on throughout the day, but I'm just talking about the actual logistics of life and death here right now. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor for sleep as an experience of death. Verses 51 and 52, it says, We shall not all sleep. Praise the Lord that not everyone who lives is even going to experience death at all. I believe that Jesus is going to come back and there will be people alive at the time Jesus returns who will not ever have to taste death. How delightful it would be to be part of that generation. But he says, we shall not all sleep, again a reference to death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of eye, at the last trumpet. 
So when does that change occur? When do we get this new eternal life immortality? At the last trumpet, not at the moment of death. Until the last trumpet, the experience of those who have died is just like being asleep. And the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now the next, and I kind of referred to this, but when I present this to to other audiences, I'll talk about, because even now we, we have these ideas about death that you can talk about someone being half dead or you know, the undead or the living dead, what, weird phrases that kind of involve like a state of like kind of gone, but not really, like there's a, you know what I'm saying? And so the Bible even answers the question, well, how deep is that sleep of death? Is there a partial consciousness? Is it a odd kind of mystical spiritual existence on a different plane kind of thing where you can walk, you know what I'm saying? The Bible actually tells us what it's like experientially to be dead. Look at Ecclesiastes again, chapter 9. This is one of the most well-known passages about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we're going quickly to get our time in here, but it says, verses 5 and 6, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know what? Nothing. Okay? Now think about that. The people who are alive, now that sin is into the world, now I would suppose that Adam, before there was sin, didn't expect to die. Right? It's not like he made us in the beginning, we're all going to wind down around the hundred year mark or something like that. He made it, I mean, even, you mean, look at the Bible genealogies, right? A hundred years would be infancy to like Methuselah and Lamech and Noah and these guys. I mean, hundreds and hundreds. Have you ever thought about how long some of those lifespans are? Like 969 years was the record, right? Except, of course, you have to have the big asterisk for Enoch, who's still alive today. So he's, at, he's like cruising at 6,000 or something. But, except for him, <laughs> and Elijah, a couple of outliers, right, who never tasted death, the longest lived human being, I mean, if you took Methuselah in 969 years, and, a, and let's say today, instead of this seminar, we were at a funeral for Methuselah. 969 years, and today, this is the year 2021. I'm not a great mathematician, but when would he have been born? Before. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Earlier. <laughs> right? But what would have been his birthday, or birth year, roughly? I mean, round it up to 1,000 years, okay? It's pretty close, but and we're, we're talking about 1,021 so maybe another hundred, maybe roughly around the 1200, 1100, something like that. Can you possibly imagine what it would have been like? What you have seen since the 1200s till now in one lifespan. If we were at his funeral, we'd talk about how he witnessed the entire, I mean, even think about this. The Protestant Reformation would have happened in his middle age. Right? We can't even wrap our minds around that kind of longevity. 
I mean, when Columbus set sail for the New World, he was already on the downhill slope. The American Revolution, I mean, he was a retirement village at that point. It's crazy. And we think that's just stupendously long, but according to Scripture, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a what? A day. It's like a day. You know what the angels thought about Methuselah? Their, their lamentation about his life is that he died so young. He didn't even make it to one day. You know? Our understand we, we, we're living in such a small little slice of the greater life Christ wants to give us. That this life seriously is just a taste test. It's a sampler of the life to come. See what I'm saying? It's just hard to wrap our minds around. But in the meantime, what is Methuselah thinking about now? According to Scripture. Nothing. He doesn't know about the Protestant Reformation. He doesn't know man went to the moon. He just doesn't. And he's not like missing out on it or longing or forgetting. or Because the Bible even talks about those emotions. If you keep reading Ecclesiastes 9, again, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. I mean, think of it. Do dead people hold a grudge? No. Which that, that alone undoes the entire haunted house industry. Right? The whole predication of all this supernatural love stuff is that, the, that they didn't finish something, they're angry about it, they got some emotion, or they're bored, or they're lonely. No! We are assuming life into something that isn't anymore. So he tries to say, all their love, their hatred, their envy are now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Oh, and the reincarnation thing. No, there's no mention of reincarnation in the Bible. You come back as something else. That's, that's, no, that's not a thing. In fact, Psalm 115, look at this one. People say, yes, but they don't have anything to do with under the sun, but they're up in heaven, right, praising the Lord around the throne. Or, but look at this one. Psalm 115, verse 17, says very plainly, the dead do not praise the Lord. Does that mean that they're all, all dead people are against God? Of course not. They're just not conscious of the experience. Nor any who go down into silence. Let's pause here and come back in 10 minutes time. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.